Well, howdy, howdy, howdy. This is the story of the Old Testament, walking through the Old Testament historical uh, narrative portions of Scripture as we're learning about uh, that overall backbone, so to speak, of of God's Word in the Old Testament. Uh, we are in the book of Exodus, and uh, this is week 10 for the week of March 11, 5 through 11. Um, so, yeah. Week 10, we're in Exodus chapters 32 through 40, as well as you can read Psalms 46 through 50 uh, this week. And so we are here. Uh, Moses has gone up to the mountain, talked to God, right? Um, But now he's going to be coming back down from the mountain. God has given him the two tablets. You read that at the very tail end of chapter 31. He says, and he gave to Moses, God did, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So remember, God has, in a sense, married Israel. They have had the blood sprinkled on them in this ceremony. They have promised to be his faithful bride, so to speak, to be his faithful people. And he has promised to be their faithful God and husband. And here... We see when things go wrong really fast, really fast. Um, And yet, it is in these moments, again, where God's people fail. God's people break the covenant. And we will see what kind of a God we actually serve. Who? What is the heart of the Lord God of Israel? What is his heart towards his people? And what is his heart towards us. So remember, God's redeemed his people out of Egypt. They they didn't even believe him in Egypt. They were still clinging to their idols in Egypt, and yet he redeemed them anyway. And then whenever he redeems them out of Egypt, right? He brings them to the Red Sea, and then they see the Egyptians and they disbelieve again. And they think repeatedly they say things like where God has told them through Moses, "I'm going to bring you out of Egypt in order to bring you to a good land." They say, you constantly say, you know, you brought us out of Egypt, just kill us. And so then, of course, God redeems them anyway through the Red Sea. Well, then right after the Red Sea, well, you just brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. It would have been better for us to live in Egypt. And so they're, they're, they gripe about water and they gripe about food. And they think that without food and without water, they're going to die and God can't provide it. Well, God provides it because God has always been teaching them that they don't live by bread alone. They live by every word that comes from God. You would have thought they would have known that after those 10 plagues in Egypt and after walking through the Red Sea and all of that stuff, but they still didn't learn it. And then in Exodus 19 and into 20, they come to the mountain where all the limits are there surrounding the mountain of God. And they, uh, they, they hear their Lord speak to them and they're afraid with the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet And uh, they tell Moses, you go talk to God um, and we'll stay right here and we'll do whatever you say to do that God tells us to do. So Moses goes, talks to God, comes back. They enter into the covenant in Exodus 24. And uh, then God puts the blood, Moses puts the blood on them. And and there's this marriage ceremony uh, between God and Israel. And then Moses goes back up the mountain to receive uh, more of what God wants from Israel and how God wants to dwell with Israel, right? He gives them, he gives Moses and tells him in these chapters that we read last week about 
all of the, the, the tabernacle, his tent, you know, God's people live in a tent and God is now saying, well, since I've, I, I've, I'm married to these people, I'm going to live with them too. And so he tells Moses exactly how to build the tent, the basin, the lampstands, the altar, the ark, and so on. And then he uh, gives Moses these tablets and sends Moses back. And then we open up in Exodus chapter 32, and what do we read? When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And you would have thought they would have said this, right? They would have said, Aaron, Moses hasn't showed back up yet, but, you know, we know all that the Lord has done in the past, and let, let's, let's maybe we should pray together, Aaron. Is that appropriate? Or what would be appropriate for us to do right now to worship God and to trust? Because we kind of, you know, we, Moses hasn't come down. He has, he's been delayed. Um, what should we do? And, uh, the, you know, you would have thought they would have done something like that, right? Because we think that's what we would do, correct? Wrong. But they go to Aaron and say to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron tells them, you know, um, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Now, remember, remember all of this gold, excuse me, all of this gold and silver and jewelry who had ultimately given it to them. Well, the Egyptians gave it to them, but because of God, the Lord, their husband, that they have as a people become married to, so to speak. He's given them this beautiful jewelry. He's given them all of these wonderful gifts and blessings and treasures. But look what they do with the blessings of God. They want Aaron to take all of the blessings of God and make an idol out of it so that they can serve a different God or a God the way they want to. They want, and they, they say, and so Aaron says, uh, take off your rings, right? And then they, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, what a poor substitute for a God, by the way. They saw the glory of God in the cloud and in the pillar of, of a fire they saw the glory of God as he went through Egypt and slayed all the firstborn of Egypt, but passed over their houses. They saw the glory of God in a God that they could not see with their eyes or, or a touch, but they heard him and they saw the fire and the trumpet and the sound of his words speaking to them. And they were afraid, but now look what they've done. They've tamed down their God, a golden calf. What a poor and sorry substitute exchanging the glory of the immortal God. They made for themselves uh, images of mortal man and creatures. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. So now they're going to worship and build an altar. They're going to make notice. They were never willing really to make sacrifices to the, the to the true God. Um, but now they'll make some sacrifices. You know, they, they're, they're so readily willing to sacrifice to the idols shows Egypt has not gotten out of their hearts, even though they're still out of, even though the Lord, their husband has taken them out of Egypt and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So just like we saw before, right? What happened? The elders of Israel came and ate and drank before God 
in a holy reverential way and they saw the lord they saw the they saw the manifestation um, of the power and the beauty of holiness of their redeemer and here look what these people do though they treat god very casually they eat and drink before their god but they just rise up to play And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves, notice that, for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Let's begin by reading about Exodus 32. This is called What's So Wrong with a Golden Calf? This is by Chad Bird, and I've slightly edited it, but um, but yeah, it's, it's still, it's going to be great. Put yourself in our shoes. We meant well. I mean, it wasn't as if we woke up after waiting all those days and said to each other, hey, let's become idol worshipers today. It was nothing like that. We hadn't seen hide or, nor hair of Moses for so long that we figured he was dead up there on the mountain somewhere. And here we were, smack dab in the middle of no man's land. We had to do something. We had to get moving. We And we needed God to lead the way. So we made this icon of the Lord, this golden calf. Aaron certainly seemed to have no qualms about it, and he was the brother of Moses. It was officially sanctioned, you might say. Our soon-to-be high priest himself gave it a thumbs up. What more could a people ask for? We never intended to alter our allegiance, to swap creeds. We said as much. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Everyone knew it was Yahweh who who rescued us from slavery. And if there was any doubt, Aaron removed it when he built an altar before the calf and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Hear that? To Yahweh. We never meant to praise a metal cow. This was divine worship, not bovine worship. The image was just that, an image, an icon of our God. Needless to say, if you've read the story in Exodus 32, things didn't turn out so well. When Moses finally showed up, he smashed to smithereens the stone tablets the Ten Commandments were written on. He took our icon, burned it, ground it into powder, scattered it over some water, and made us drink it. He turned the Levites into executioners, and when they were done, we had 3,000 graves to dig. So the law was shattered, our icon was inside our guts, and lots of bloody corpses littered our camp. All this because we decided that it was okay for us to choose how we approach God. Obviously, we were wrong and we suffered the consequences. It doesn't matter how pure or how religious our motives were. It doesn't matter that we meant well. We learned in the hardest of ways that we don't get to decide how God is to be worshipped. He doesn't leave it up to us to determine how best to come to him. He takes no opinion polls, doesn't put his finger to the cultural winds, never forms a committee to make the decision for him. It doesn't matter how pretty our golden calf was, how good it made people feel, how it connected with them, how comfortable they felt approaching God that way. In the end, because we, not God, had made this calf our own way, our own truth, our own life, it became our own downfall, our own lie, our own death. God is big on the scandal of particularity. Uh, No one comes to him on their own terms. They come to him only via his son, Jesus. To see Jesus is to see the entirety of God. All the fullness of divinity dwells in him. We worship God who is a man, a man who is God, a God-man who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through him, for in him the Father was pleased to dwell. In him the Father paid for our sins in the currency of blood. In him the Father gives us the entirety of himself. So learn from us, Israelites. Trash your golden calves. Treasure Jesus Christ. In him you have everything you need and more. So God is angry and expresses his wrath towards God's people so that they will know this. And the question is, is will God, what will God do now? What will his response be to these people? Moses goes up and says, I'm going to go up and see if I can intercede for you. I'm going to go up and talk to God. So he's a mediator picturing to us the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Exodus 34, How God Loves Us. This is by Wade Johnson. Israel hit a rough patch of their own making. This was rock bottom. They turned their back on the one thing keeping them alive and turned back to the ways of those who enslaved them. Their preacher was gone longer than expected, so they gave up on him and on his God. They told the preacher's brother, their priest, to make them new gods, to go before them, and he did. They needed a preacher, yet Aaron the priest was a pawn. They took the gold rings from their ears, and he made them an idol. They gave up on their preacher and gave over their ears. Their preacher had become merely this Moses, this man. Moses came down the mountain, two tablets in hand, on which God himself had written his law. The sound from the camp reached him long before he reached it. The people shouted and danced for their idol. Unbelief loves the sound of its own voice and never sits still. Incensed, he threw down the commandments. They broke at the foot of the mountain. It was a debacle. Sin leaves a bitter aftertaste. Moses wanted the people to savor it. He threw the idol into fire and ground it to powder. He made them drink it. God had done so much for them. In return, they had done this to themselves. Moses was incensed, but he was their preacher, so he wouldn't give up. He knew God was holy and just, but he also knew something more. And so he resolved to speak up for those he was called to speak to. Moses approached the Lord as a sinner who led a sinful people. He made no pretense. The Israelites had sinned badly. They turned their back on God. There was no way around it. By interceding for them, Moses was taking up the cause of sinners as a sinner with people who broke the commandments before they had even had them. Moses knew God was holy and just, but he also knew something more. He went to the Lord and pled for mercy on the basis of God's grace or favor. Favor is how God sees you in grace. Moses knew that even in his wrath, God would see him in grace. God was holy and just, but he was also something more. With words that seemed like he was begging for death, he told God, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Those are some words. Moses' knees must have trembled beneath his robes. He put his life on the line for his people because he knew the Lord, and he knew the Lord knew him. And yet, the Lord spoke troubling words. He told Moses to lead the people into the land he promised them, which was good, but added that he would not go with them. The Lord then sent a plague on the people. The wages of sin is death. This was not what Moses had hoped for. God seemed to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Moses was listening, though, and Moses knew what to do. The Lord repeated his command to leave Sinai. It was time to go. Head to the land he had promised to Abraham, he told Moses. 
Go, he said, but know that he would not be going with them, lest he consume them because of their sin, because they were a stiff-necked people. Moses' people were a rotten lot. God had their ears again, so the people listened. And what they received through Moses was a disastrous word. God gave Moses a word, and he preached it, and, and it did its work. Terrible, terrifying work. The people were struck to the heart. Those who had so easily turned from God before now refused to go with him. They looked to their preacher. Was this it? Thankfully, they had a good preacher. He refused to give up on them, and he refused to give up on God. So Moses interceded for the people again, and God heard him. God promised to go with the people. Moses was bold to ask for a guarantee of sorts. He asked to see God, see the Lord's glory. The Lord said he could see his goodness. God would show Moses who he was, just as he shows us who he is today in the bread, wine, and water of the sacraments. This wouldn't be easy for Moses. Seeing God isn't for sinners. God had to protect Moses. God said he would hide his preacher in the cleft of the rock and cover him with his hand until the time was right. At just the right moment, he would take away his hand so Moses could see his back. But Moses couldn't see his face. For their own good, sinners couldn't see the face of God. The Lord told Moses to cut two tablets of stone so he could write on them as he had with the first set. Moses did so. In the morning, he went back up to Sinai. Before he could reach the top, the Lord descended to him. The Lord has a habit of descending to us. The Lord descended and gave his preacher a preachment or a sermon on his name. It was mercifully short, and it was full of mercy. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Modern readers latch on to the last part. The Lord doesn't acquit. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children to the third and fourth generation. But modern readers miss the point. Any sociologist can tell you that we visit the iniquity on future generations as much as any deity. We are products of our home, our parents' homes, and their parents' homes. We live with the decisions of communities made long ago. And a wrathful deity would hardly have struck Moses or the Israelites as innovative. Their world was full of them. The first half of the Lord's sermon is what would have struck them, especially at that moment, and it's what should strike us, because the Lord is so utterly unlike anything or anyone else, including us. God preached to the preacher, and the preacher preached to his people, the Lord's people. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps his promises. He forgives the Israelites had received a sermon before this. They had disastrous words to think on. That sermon, however, was penultimate. This was the final word. We too live under contradictory words. We know God is holy and just, and sin has consequences. Like Moses, though, we need to know something more. We have an advantage, too. We can see God's face. The Lord took on flesh and spoke, and we have that word, a marvelous word, good news. Moses knew what to do when he heard contradictory words from God, a God who doesn't acquit but forgives, who kills but makes alive, who hides but reveals himself. Listen to Moses. See the face of the Lord with your ears. Listen to the one to whom Moses listened. He speaks good news, 
He is gracious and merciful. He abounds in love. He forgives even those who hit a rough patch of their own of their making, who hit rock bottom at high speed. Who is your God? God tells you. Hear him. Unbelief loves the sound of its own voice and is always busy. Faith listens. God speaks. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the Lord proclaims his grace to his people through the sound and through the voice of his preacher. But here now, let's think about this same instance here, really kind of thinking about all that we've been talking about from this aspect. You've heard me talk about how God, in a sense, married Israel at Mount Sinai. He entered into a marriage covenant with them. Well, let's think about this whole incident, really Exodus 32 through 34, from the perspective of a marriage. And this is called the Desert Honeymoon. This is by Sarah Horgan. Engagement party, bridal shower, wedding with rehearsal dinner and reception, honeymoon, gender reveal party, baby moon, baby shower, baby sprinkle. There are too many parties, my husband remarks, after we receive yet another wedding invitation. He lists all the events our society has conceived of to celebrate the allegedly mundane steps preceding and following the central event of matrimony, and I teasingly call him a curmudgeon. Also, I'm impressed that he knows what a baby sprinkle is. There is a time for every occasion, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, and it seems meet to me to celebrate what we can while the sun is hot. The problem is not the celebration. The problem, I say to my husband, is materialism and increasing expectations. And Pinterest. Flipping through my parents' wedding album, recently I noted a stark contrast between a Nazarene wedding in the 1980s and the average wedding today. For one thing, way more people are getting married in barns than churches, myself included. I won't venture a comment on what this says about Americans, but the reader can make inferences. The average cost of an American wedding in 2019 was $28,000. But according to Con Nast Bridal Media Research, it was about half that in 1990. My parents followed their ceremony with simple cake and ice cream in the church's reception hall. Apparently, small plastic fountains buttressing a tiered cake was a sine qua non in the late 80s, but drone-captured videography, personalized wedding favors, and full orchestral bands at the reception were not yet. The amount of stress involved with wedding planning has increased along with the cost, which is embroiled in societal expectations. A young engaged woman at my church said that she had become so stressed about wedding planning that her fiancé suggested she delete her Instagram. The temptation for comparison is strong within the wedding industry, and the many decisions can become points of contention among couples and their families as they try to balance a budget with expectations of grandeur. Honeymoons, too, fall under this umbrella. A Google search for top honeymoon destinations gave me a top result by The Knot, a popular wedding planning website titled 70 Instagram-Worthy Honeymoon Spots. Might as well have the byline, spend lots of money and angst on something you could be doing any other day besides your honeymoon. The Bible mentions a place few people would choose for a honeymoon destination, a place that would not garner envy on social media or in bridal magazines, and yet it's a destination that Christians ought to be more familiar with. Wedding imagery is rife in the New Testament, but it is anteceded in the Bible by the grandest image of matrimony that most modern believers have never heard of, 
the wedding and honeymoon of God and Israel in the Sinai Desert. Marty Solomon explains that the Hebrew Exodus and the entire scene at Mount Sinai are an image of Jewish matrimony between God and his chosen people. It's imagery that the Jewish people have long recognized in rabbinic tradition, albeit with different variations. The main components of ancient Jewish weddings, some of which are still upheld today, included events and items such as the bride's consecration, the blowing of the shofar, the chupa, which is a tent-like covering, the ketubah, a wedding covenant, and the exchange of wedding gifts. All these things occur in the book of Moses. Like a bride, Israel is consecrated before the ceremony. The cloud covering descends upon the mountain. The horn is blown to announce the beginning of the ceremony. The Ten Commandments defining the relationship are delineated, and the Torah is given as the dowry. When God calls Israel his treasured possession in Deuteronomy 14.2, that is overt wedding talk, says Solomon, the kind of language a groom would use for his bride. If rabbinic tradition generally agrees that the scene at Sinai is a wedding, this could mean that a honeymoon would follow. A common consensus is that the idea of the honeymoon originated with the Victorians, as wealthy newlyweds would tour the country to visit family and friends who did not attend the wedding. However, the idea of a time and space set aside for newly married couples existed in ancient cultures too. Solomon explains that Jewish weddings included an engagement period that the groom spent by, living a room, by building a room onto his father's house, a room which he and his future wife would live in together. After the wedding, the couple would move into this new room, and during the first year of marriage, the new husband was not to fight in war or engage in business, in order that he and his wife could begin to nurture their relationship. In a culture of arranged marriages, this was especially important, since the two young people may have met only once before at their betrothal, and that period of a year, which we might retroactively identify as akin to a honeymoon, allowed them to get to know each other as well as cultivate their burgeoning relationship. If the Jewish wedding ends with the bride following her husband to their newly built house, then the wedding at Sinai ends with the bride, Israel, following the bridegroom, Yahweh, around the desert until eventually they come to their future home, the promised land, the home the bridegroom has prepared for his bride. In Jeremiah 2.2, God says to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. This verse references that honeymoon-esque period when the Israelites carried their tabernacle around the desert, not knowing when or where the journey would end. Importantly, this period, traveling to their new home and beginning to build their marital relationship, did not end with a first-class ticket to Canaan or a return to normal life. It's unclear when exactly it did end, which is sort of the point. The desert honeymoon is much less cut and dry than modern honeymoons. And this story gives little demarcation of where the pleasures end and the nitty-gritty work begins. Today's honeymoons may be viewed as a buffer zone between anticipation and planning and the real work of marriage. But perhaps such a view impedes a helpful understanding of the complexities of marriage. Hint, it's not an Instagram-friendly version. The desert honeymoon offers an alternative but more realistic projection of married life. Medieval monastics sought out the desert, which might suggest that the desert is a better place for promoting celibacy than nurturing marriage. But maybe they understood something we miss in our glorification of romantic relationships. Monks looking for solitude, spiritual refinement, and intimacy with God also encountered glaring temptations, feelings of exile, and utter bleakness. In the words of Gail Fitzpatrick, 
Those who seek the desert's peace find instead a raw encounter with all that is untamed and unregenerate in their hearts. This discovery is true of married men and women as much as medieval monks. The 40 years of wilderness wandering is an infamous story, full of bitterness, grumbling, plague, disobedience, and even death. A journey that no young newlywed couple would dream of copying. Or would they? The lesson on the desert honeymoon, perhaps, is that whether you seek the mountains or the beach, you eventually end up in the desert. Dry, desperate, depraved. And in that desert, you not only see your spouse's nakedness, but your own. Unlike the not-depicted honeymoons, the desert honeymoon is about so much more than R&R. It's about the hard work of sanctification. It is your soul you need to change, wrote the poet and essayist Kathleen Morris, not the climate. Norris wrote that a metaphorical desert experience can be understood as a difficult training in how to love and as the gift of our merciful Father. Marriage is ultimately for sanctification. There is plenty of fun and laughter, the hope of children, the joy of intimacy and emotional connection, and shared experiences. The modern practice of honeymooning can encourage a foundation of connection for the rest of the marriage, but the honeymoon period... Whether you spend two weeks in Bali, five days at a mountain cabin, or one night at a local motel, is only the beginning of the wild adventure of recognizing your own ugly sins and learning to forgive your spouses. The shadow of Sinai is not a self-affirming place. It's not even an other-affirming place. It's a place where both spouses come face-to-face with God and recognize that they cannot compare with Him. Solomon says that Jewish wedding traditions and the understanding of the Sinai story as a large-scale wedding are sort of like the chicken and the egg. We don't really know whether the traditions developed after the scene at Sinai or before, or if they both informed each other. But by the time these elements are are referenced in the New Testament, and Jesus plots himself as the bridegroom of the new church, the Jews would have easily recognized what he was doing. They already understood God as the bridegroom of his people came from references like Hosea 2, Ezekiel 16, and Isaiah 54. But whether the chicken or the egg came first, the greatest thing about this story is that we do not model our understanding of God's love upon our understanding of marriage, but the other way around. God is faithful to the covenant he crafted and the institution he created, even as human marriages falter or fail. This is plain within the same text. In the middle of the wedding ceremony at Sinai, the Israelites built a golden calf and started worshiping it. This gives new context to Moses' anger and the moment when he throws the newly carved tablets on the ground, says Solomon. It's not just that Moses is angry, it's that he sees the tablets, the ketubah, as futile. It's like the bride is fornicating with some other man in the middle of their wedding. It's extreme, yes, but the elements are not unfamiliar. It's easy to settle into the months-long wedding planning mindset and then expect to be able to plan the marriage too, and newlyweds can find themselves frustrated and angry enough to turn that honeymoon glow into a post-wedding dumpster fire. But in this old, old, beautiful story, the marriage is not destroyed. God forgives. He instructs Moses to create new tablets. The marriage ensues. In Ezekiel 20, God references the judgment he doled out to Israel during those desert years. He threatens to do it again, too, as his people have once again rebelled against him. Yet there's something strangely comforting about this threat. The most joyous thing we can fear is that God will do the same for us when he says, I will bring you into the bond of covenant. Marriage is hard work, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating it as many ways as possible because God knows the trying times do come. 
The desert honeymoon of the Israelites may serve as a reminder that picture-perfect weddings and honeymoons are much less to be sought than marriages which rely entirely on the consistent, sometimes painful, always sanctifying grace of God. Okay, so here we are. We've, we've talked about how God has um, married his people. He's uh, entered into a covenant with them. He's already forgiven them, right? He's uh, blessed them. And then let's close here lastly um, with, I'm trying to think here, what should we do? Let's do this. Let's close with Wade Johnson. We're not really going to go through much of the... Um, the rest, there's so much more we could do, but there's so many, these, these 32 through 34 are so important that, um, you know, we'll kind of just really focus on these. Um, we'll do one last thing here. It's called the veil of Moses and the face of Christ. It's from Wade Johnson. It's about Exodus 34 again. So we've, we've, we've thought about all of this stuff that's happened because it really is a, a wonderful instance where God's grace and our relationship to him really, really comes forth. This is from Exodus uh, 34 when Moses comes down and his face is shining. So let's, let's, let's listen and reflect about this. Moses had been away. He'd been away for a while, a while longer than expected. They got nervous. They got nervous and well, when the cat's away, the mice will play. They got nervous and maybe they felt free and they were probably bored. And so they fell back on what they knew. And with that, they fell into all manner of sin. They worshiped like the people from whom they'd been delivered that and more. It was despicable, it was vile, it was disgusting, but they'd done it. God told Moses to head down from Sinai. He told them what the people were up to below. Moses went down with the tablets, the Ten Commandments in his hand, inscribed by the very hand of God, and when he saw the depths of depravity to which the Israelites had sunk, into which they dove, driven and weighted down by fear and doubt and boredom and false freedom, he was shocked and indignant. He dropped the tablets, small enough to fit in one hand, but too heavy in that moment for him to bear. He confronted his brother Aaron, who was supposed to prevent such badness. Aaron was a preacher. He was supposed to be a mouth for the people, but instead only became an ear. Was he repentant? Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It sounds so innocent, doesn't it? The people said some stuff, so I threw some stuff in the fire, and poof, out came this golden calf, and things unfolded from there. It's nothing to get too worked up about. No one meant anything by it. Times change, people not so much. We too have our idols and our sins, despicable, vile, disgusting. Thankfully, they aren't recorded for posterity in scripture, but even the briefest thought of their revelation to a friend or family member or colleague or partner is terrifying, isn't it? Yet, are we so different than Aaron? As with the Israelites, all our sins are known by God, but to hear us tell it, things sort of just happen, as if we're disembodied, standing at a distance from our thoughts and words and deeds. There's no need to get too worked up, we tell ourselves and others. Poof, a golden calf. So it goes for us as well. Israel was caught, however, and they had every reason to be afraid. They were left to wonder if this was it. Would the Lord be done with them now? How could he not be? Who needs such a people? Moses pled for them, however. He took his call seriously, even though they'd sinned against him, too. And Moses was a good Christian. He held God to his word, which always delights our Lord. 
God had made promises to their forefathers, and God was a God of his word, and so the Lord relented. The Lord now told Moses that the Israelites could go on into the promised land, but he, the Lord, would not be going with them. This was not good news. Moses knew there was no point in going without God. There was no point in being anywhere without God. And so faith did what faith does. It held fast to God's goodness and begged. So Moses went back up the mountain. God didn't give up on Israel. Moses found favor, grace. God knew his name, election. God would not be leaving, mercy. God had chosen Israel in spite of itself, and he would preserve them in spite of themselves. Moses headed down the mountain, again with tables in his hand, but with something more as well. He didn't know it, but the others noticed right away, and they were afraid. Even the leaders, even Aaron, like a mother calming her frightened child, Moses had to coax them into his presence. They were to walk to the glory, not run away, but only because this glory came with divine peace. God was not leaving. God is mercy. He was mercy then. He's mercy now. God showed them his glory, if only a reflection in the face of Moses. Their mediator had found favor, and thus so had they. They would live. The Lord would go with them. They were still his special people, and yet this glory needed to be veiled, not because it would kill them, but because it wasn't to last. It was just for the time being. Eternal life was to be found in another face. The glory they saw in Moses' face was transitory. It was fading. There was a new, a better glory to come, just as Moses had. God's people would one day see the face of God. We recently celebrated the transfiguration. That is when the author wrote this. Frightened disciples on another mountain saw the glory of God, and Moses was there. A witness not merely of, but to it. Here the mediator of the old covenant met his match and rejoiced. Here he met his match and even more his master, the one mediator between God and people, the new covenant in the flesh. Here was Christ. Here was the permanent glory, the glory that would never end. One other face shown in scripture, it was Stephen's, the first martyr in Acts. It happened after he was seized, before he was stoned. And you know what he did as his face looked like that of an angel? He talked about Moses, and then he preached about Christ. Then as they killed him, and brutally so, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen died a condemned man in the eyes of the world, but he was the but he was free, the freest of anyone there. He was free because he had seen glory in Christ through the Spirit who brought him to faith and kept him even in that dark hour. And as a free man, he freely forgave as he had been freely forgiven. And he went home to the Lord, and his face shines still, pointing us to the source of his light. So see Jesus. See him at the transfiguration. Savor that glimpse of his glory, but also see him in the days to come. See him walk to another mountain, very unlike Sinai. See him climb Calvary and put his glory on full display, even as it was hidden, because his glory is for you. And when sinners become saints, it resounds to his glory. St. John says of our heavenly home, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. How our faces will shine when we see him. How they shine for him now, even though hidden. Oh, to talk and shine with Moses, with Stephen, with Paul, and yes, with Christ, our Lamb and our light. Like Peter, it's natural for us to get excited, 
But remember, we only get there through the cross. His transfiguration is ours, but so also will be his suffering, his death, and his resurrection in the weeks to come. And in all of it, see light and glory and mercy in his face unveiled and for you and forever. Well, there we go. God is going to stay, and we see that as the tabernacle goes forth and God decides, God. well, God always knew, but this was always the plan, but uh, God's people realize despite their sin, God will still dwell with them. And so he fills that tabernacle in Exodus 40 and lives amongst his people. And next week, we will go into Leviticus and begin a book that is somewhat difficult, isn't it? But hopefully, and I trust we will find Christ there preached clearly to us in all of the sacrifices and the sacrificial system. And Leviticus has an important role in the Bible in teaching us that. Okay, well, this week I want to wrap up with a psalm. Yes, so this is going to be uh, something, this is going to be Psalm 46, I believe is uh, the, let me make sure real quick. Let me look here so I uh, don't give you the uh, wrong thing this week. Yes, I was making sure that we were in Psalms 46. Yes. So this is actually from some uh, Highland singers in Scotland. Um, so it's, uh, you know, this is uh, this is our, our Scottish brethren singing the psalm. So enjoy this. Um, thank you for listening to it. And take care. And God bless.